Welcome to the Mindful Dietitian interview series. I'm Fiona Sutherland, dietitian from Melbourne, Australia and director of the Mindful Dietitian. Please join me as I interview dietitians from all over the world who are experts in health at every size, the non-diet approach and mindfulness-based practice. These are a collection of interviews by a dietitian for dietitians and nutritionists so that we can build a strong community of wonderful professionals who share an inclusive vision of well-being for everybody in everybody. Thanks so much for joining me. Hello and welcome back to this next episode of the Mindful Dietitian interview series. Recently, it was so wonderful to sit down with our fellow dietitian, Dana Sturtevant, who's from Portland, Oregon. You may best know Dana as one half, so to speak, of Be Nourished, a revolutionary business helping people heal body dissatisfaction and reclaiming body trust, along with her business partner, Hilary Canavy. Hilary and Dana do incredible things together, such as training and certification for health providers, e-courses and professional supervision. But alongside her partnership with Hillary, Dana is just simply incredible in her own right. She's not only a dietitian specializing in health at every size and intuitive eating, but she's also a yoga teacher and a member of the International Motivational Interviewing Network of Trainers, otherwise known as MINT. So Dana comes with a plethora of talents and skills and is obviously a real specialist when it comes to aspects of work, including mindfulness and self-compassion. Dana has facilitated more than 300 workshops throughout the US for health providers looking to enhance their skills in behaviour change counselling. So if you're a dietitian looking for MI training in the US, I cannot recommend Dana highly enough. And I did see that she's running a course at Kripalu, which is um, a beautiful uh, yoga uh, retreat center on the east coast and that's where I met Dana and Hillary last year which was such a great privilege. So Dana is also well known for being able to recite poetry off the top of her head and luckily for us we're able to hear her in action here. I just love hearing Dana recite poetry. She she just does it off the top of her head. It's really quite an incredible talent. I've personally got the most enormous amount of respect and admiration for the work that Dana does and her work alongside Hillary. They are true game changers and Dana is what I would describe as an authentic leader in our field. You can find out more about Dana and Dana and Hillary's work at www.benourished.org and you can hear and you can hear and see more about their provider training certification or e-courses through their newsletter. I hope you really enjoy this interview. See you soon. Good morning, good afternoon or good evening wherever you are in the world. Today I have the enormous pleasure of sitting down with the incredible Dana Sturtevant from Be Nourished in Portland, Oregon. So uh, good morning and your good evening, Dana. Hi, good evening. Yes, it's about 3.20 here. Yeah, time for afternoon uh, sodas, I suppose, and morning <laughs> coffees for me. <laughs> Dana, it's such an enormous pleasure to sit down with you. And I know that, you know, when we, when we connected last year, um, we, were, we were musing about the, the uh, incredible parallels between the journey of yourself and Hillary and then um, myself and Sarah in, in Australia with Body Positive Australia. And, um, we, you know, I, I haven't had 
a great opportunity to sit down with you like this and understand a little bit more about your about your path mm -hmm. to, to where you are today and um you and hillary are just doing such incredible stuff i've just got mm. oh gosh um you know all the kudos and all the all the um all the, all the love and all the hugs and we all are so we're all so grateful um so do you want to start us off or do you mind starting us off telling telling us a little bit about um your dietetic career yeah so um i've been in practice about 20 years 20 years or so and when i moved to oregon um in 1999 is I, I got a job in research and it was one of my first my first jobs out of school and in the research world I was working with participants in clinical trials helping them make lifestyle changes to improve their health and some of the studies that I worked on had a focus on weight and and weight loss and most more specifically weight loss maintenance and it was also at this research center job where I was um, exposed to motivational interviewing. And that's one of the things that I do in my business is train other healthcare providers in motivational interviewing. Um, but that, that alone in terms of that research position to, to be extensively trained in a counseling style that helps me have better conversations with people about their behaviors and, and healing um, it was critical to my career. So um, I'm, I'm very grateful for my time there, um, in particularly around that motivational interviewing training. Um, I like to say that, you know, at least when I was trained, you know, most dietitians are trained to educate. And like most healthcare providers were trained to believe that knowledge is what changes behavior, but there is not a high correlation between what people know and what they do. Mm -hmm. And so um, motivational interviewing really gave me um, the counseling skills that I think are really necessary to be able to talk to people about change and about their health and about the ambivalence they feel when they're considering something different, when they're considering breaking up with diet culture and whatnot. Um, so that was part of my journey in that job or my, part of my um, work in that job was was using motivational interviewing um and you know that it was in that work as a dietitian uh, i was called a health research interventionist was my my term oh fancy yeah interventionist is kind of a scary, <laughs> a scary term <laughs> it is i i can visualize you in some kind of like big iron suit you know i am intervening Exactly. <laughs> you, you must listen to me. No, it wasn't. Quite like that. That's what the term sounds like, right? I know. Scary. Um, yeah. And I, you know, in that research job, I worked with a, uh, I did both group facilitation and I did individual counseling sessions with um, the participants in the clinical trials. And um, the the diet that we were working with it was the di the the dash diet, the di uh, dietary approaches to stopping hypertension, and a mm. lot of the um, outcomes were, fo were were focused on lowering blood pressure and reducing risk of heart disease. But of course, um, they also had a recommendation to lose a certain amount of weight during the studies, and so 
We used a um, six-month intervention that um, the research center had been using for um, probably about 15 or so years before I came into the research center because, you know, from their perspective, the intervention worked, people changed their behaviors, and they lost weight. Just like most things, the participants' weight was down at at six months. So the intervention, the, the, the investigators I worked with said, you know, the intervention works. Well, you know, when we looked at the two-year outcome data, we know where it was, right? We know that the participants did not keep their weight off, that their weight was often back where it was at the start of the study, and oftentimes it was higher. And, of course, the investigators did not believe the intervention was the problem. Yeah. Yeah. They thought, you know, that just like people do, we, you know, people blame themselves um, for failing, and I'm putting that in quotes, and for failing the diet, for, for, for having a hard time sustaining these unsustainable behaviors. And, um, and the investigators were wanting, uh, we were basically designing Inter, uh, interventions in terms of how to help people maintain the weight they've lost mm. and by following them more consistently and doing phone calls and groups and some e-interventions. It was uh, quite a while ago before e-courses and online interventions were a thing. And so they were testing some online um, e-based interventions as well. Mm. And, you know, I worked there for, seven or eight years with this six month program and started to feel unethical. I started to, I, first of all, I started to wonder why we were talking about weight with people and why we were weighing them. And mm -hmm. um, I, I thought, well, if we're healthcare providers and we want to help people be help improve their health, why don't we just focus on health behaviors and, mm -hmm. you know, trust the body to sort out the weight people people do benefit from health behaviors regardless of what they weigh. Mm -hmm. And so this was my early thinking, like, why do we even make weight seems to be a problem in here. Like making it about weight seems to be a problem. Um, but of course, you know, nobody in the research that I, in, in terms of the, the staff and investigators that worked on the research study, you know, no, none of us thought we were promoting dieting because we were all aware that dieting didn't work. Mm. We, we all truly believed that we were promoting healthy lifestyle change. Yeah. But we were, you know, we were weighing people daily. Mm. Uh, well, we were encouraging people to weigh daily and we were weighing them once a week when they came in for groups. Um, we recommended that they keep food records. We, um, and track their calories. We recommended that they exercise at a certain amount of minutes per week. Um, there was a fruit and vegetable guideline, you know, all of these different guidelines. And, you know, now I know, you know, many years later that we were promoting dieting. We, we could call it whatever we want. Um, you know, when you look at the qualities of a dieting mind, people in that program were dieting and they also many of them had a pretty significant dieting history so they came in with probably not meeting criteria for eating disorders I think we would have screened them out by with that but you know they probably had some level of disordered eating yeah 
What do, what do you think it is about for, for researchers? Why were they holding on so tightly, do you think, to, to wait, even though there were some, especially in the early days, you described some really, um, some really nice, you know, supportive lifestyle, quote unquote, interventions. But then it felt, as you were talking, it felt like they were focusing more and more and more on, on weight and, and I'm, I'm curious to know what your thoughts are as to why, why they couldn't, why they couldn't let that go despite the outcomes and despite uh, what, what you were seeing. Um, what was it that, that kept that front and center, do you think? Um, I think part is, is the belief that people, you know, in bunny ears need to lose weight to be healthy. I think yeah. they, they are products of living in a world filled with weight bias. So I think there was some bias just in that. Although I will say that the, the, the weight, the weight loss they were recommending and what most people wanted to lose were really different, you know, from, a, yeah. you know, a, in terms of dropping blood pressure, you know, they were recommending, you know, five to 10% of body weight, you know, 10 to 15 pounds for many people. Well, you know, most of the participants in the study didn't, you know, wanted to lose way more, <laughs> more weight than yeah. that. Mm -hmm. um, but I think too, just coming from that, you know, that, that standard supposed evidence-based guideline for, for blood pressures to have this recommendation for weight. So I think part of it was that, um, I think, you know, when you've developed a six month, uh, program and invested a lot of time and money and energy in your career, um, to walk away from that and say, this is, this is wrong. And this is doing harm is a really hard thing. Mm -hmm. And I also think in the world of weight that there's this whole community of people who want to be the one to crack the code. Oh, yes. You know, we're going to yeah. be the ones to crack the code and fix this, fix these people. And even, <laughs> you know, years, a couple of years ago, I ran into one of the investigators and, um, and he didn't know what I was doing in my private practice. And I was talking to him and he said, oh yeah, we've got some good ideas. We're going to put Bluetooth devices in people's scales. And then when they weigh, we're going to get the information <laughs> sent to the center. Yeah, exactly. And you can imagine what was in my mind, like I, and what I, I basically was in my mind going, you have no idea what I'm doing right now. <laughs> I am horrified right now, but you have no idea that I might be horrified. Oh so, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. Good times. But yeah, I mean, I think that's a big part of it is people have based, you know, spent their entire careers on a topic and, you know, for them to admit that they're, mm. they're wrong. There's a lot at stake, isn't there really? There's a lot at stake. Yeah, exactly. And in the meantime, people are being harmed. Yeah. Um, not, not only people are being harmed, but very vulnerable very vulnerable people are not being helped, you know, which is, it's not one and the same. It's that it is, it is different, but you know, harm and not helping is in the same pool. It's in the same muck of, um, you know, this over-focus on, on weight and numbers. And, and unfortunately I think a lot of, a lot of that paradigm, uh, it, it trains people, you know, it trains people, uh, individuals to feel like that is the focus and it's all about uh, numbers and getting the numbers down specifically. Um, and, and so people go through their, um, 
go through their years feeling like that's the thing that they need to control. So when they hear, you know, something about um, body trust or health at every size or um, intuitive eating, non-diet approach, you know, all that kind of stuff, it, you know, no wonder people are like, what, what, what? Of course it feels different. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really big paradigm shift. And um, I think, you know, well, from a research perspective, I, I remember speaking up in the group and they, they thought nobody would ever participate in something if we didn't make it about, about weight. I remember one, one, in one meeting, somebody said well, people wouldn't participate in something like that, which was interesting given what my practice and business is all about all these years later. <laughs> That's yeah, right. We in, know. Yeah, in your face, <laughs> by the way, in your face. <laughs> yeah. There we go. But, so, but you, I, so you moved on from there, did you? I did. I so... Um, seven, you know, I was there seven or eight years and, and really just started to feel unethical and, um, and was as a yoga teacher, um, was interested and, and a yoga practitioner, um, I was really interested in, um, incorporating the mindfulness and self-acceptance practices of yoga with food and body image and weight. Because one of the other things I saw in the study was that it didn't seem to matter how much weight people lost most people had this attitude that it wasn't enough and they still didn't like the size or shape of their body. And so, you know, it, it seems almost like a cat chasing its tail where it was never enough. It was never good enough. There were always still, there was always still something that people wanted to change. And so I, um, you know, through my disillusionment thought, you know, there's, there's something more we could be doing here. And I also, had after working with people and seeing how life real life messy life um authentic life uh gets in the way of people being able to do the kinds of things that um healthcare providers ask them to do in the name of weight loss yes and um i really didn't want to just slap band-aids on things I really felt like that's what we were doing and research is just slapping band-aids and not really going to the root and um, so I knew I wanted to partner with a therapist and I ended up going um, coming across a an, uh, an email where somebody was looking for a dietitian to join a, a clinic and um, that's where I met Hillary Hillary was the therapist that was brought into this clinic and this clinic wanted to have a more holistic approach to weight. Um, and, you know, when I look back that long ago, I'm like, yeah, we really didn't get it quite then either. But we were certainly <laughs> doing something a little more alternative, but certainly um, it was um, not what we were doing today. But that's where I met Hillary Kanabi, who's my business partner. She's a licensed professional counselor. And we started to facilitate groups for women um, wanting to have a different relationship with all of this. We knew we wanted to offer a different conversation. We, we, and we had some ideas of where we might draw from, but we were, um, we learned a lot just talking, you know, bringing women together in a room and talking to them about this stuff. And that's really where Be Nourished was born. We worked in that clinic for about a year and then it imploded. Um, and (laughs) neither one of us, the clinic clinic imploded, um, the person running it was a bit of a control freak and, Uh, 
and we didn't want to be controlled. We didn't want to be treated but like employees. And so um, we uh, decided to leave and um, go out, get some offices together and share a tagline. And we were like, I really like this word nourish. And how about the active phrase be nourished? And that's literally how it was born. Yeah, that's gorgeous. So how long ago was that? <laughs> was 2006 Be Nourished was born. So Hillary and I started working together in 2005, so 12 years ago. Wow. Yeah. Wow, that's fantastic. And so did you um, find another space to work together? Is that how, it, how you? Yeah, so we moved our offices and, um, and we moved to a space that had a group room so we could continue to do groups together. And... Um, and we were only in that space for about a year. And then we moved into our current neighborhood where we've been for the last, mm -hmm. um, geez, we've probably been there 10 years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so what do you do in your, in your offices today? So we have um, a couple of practitioners that are counselors that, also see clients in our space and then we have a group space out back where we do groups and workshops and retreats mm, and, and trainings for healthcare providers yeah oh that's gorgeous so would you be willing dana to um <laughs> to tell us a little bit about um some of the some of the um early realizations like when when you met when you met Hillary and you look back now and you go, Oh, right. Yeah. Oops. Or eek, you know, those moments where you're like, Oh yeah. Didn't, didn't realize that. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think the biggest, one of the biggest ones I've shared is, um, you know, when I read the book intuitive eating, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. they have a chart in that book where it shows the dieting mind, a diet. Yeah. It's like the diet mentality and a non-diet mentality. Right. And when I looked at these two sides, I knew that we had been promoting dieting in the research I was working. Cause when I looked at these two sides, I knew the, the majority of participants would put them in that dieting mindset. Right. And, and realizing that when we, when our efforts to change are primarily rooted in the desire to control the size, shape and weight of our body, it's dieting. We can call it whatever we want. So there's a lot of people doing mindful eating under the promise of weight loss or, or wanting to do mindful eating with the hope that it'll change the size of their body. Mm -hmm. And chances are they're still showing up with a dieting mind. Yeah. And when, when I show my clients who believe they've given up dieting years ago, the, the, that graph they go, Oh my God, I've been, you mean I've been dieting for all these years. So to me, that was one of the biggest ahas was there, there is the presence of a dieting mind. And the more we live in a dieting culture. So most people have a dieting mind, even if they've never dieted, they have some of the qualities of a dieting mind. And if they've been chronically dieting, that mindset around food is really ingrained and continuing to focus on weight 
does not help heal the dieting mind. So Mm. that was another thing was like, we have to put thoughts about weight on the back burner. Mm -hmm. We have to reduce body checking. We stop, you know, reduce weighing and measuring and all the things we do to check our bodies to be able to shift towards healing our relationship with food and body. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Love it. Love it. It's really interesting because diving down into, um, into diet, diet mind, as you call it, or diet mentality, it, it is really fascinating because as you say, anything can be, anything can be uh, used by the diet mind, really, can't it? It can be, whether it's, whether it is intuitive eating or mindful eating or moving the body or yoga or meditation, or there's this sense of, if I don't, I think, you know, it kind of draws back to what you said originally, and that is the the not good enough mind. Am I doing this good enough? Am I doing it, you know, well enough? Um, Whereas what I know you and uh, Hillary are really all about is coming from that place of of wholeness and and, and healing from a place of um, authenticity and compassion and and, Mm -hmm. and trust. Um, Yeah. Yeah, there's a there's a level of perfectionism and rigidity in yes. in, in a dieting mind, and mm-hmm. um, you know, in a non-dieting mind, there's there's much more flexibility, and the definition of of what normal eating looks like is really broad, much broader than what most people would say. And yes, you know, we we um, recog- we we really recognize that it's not one day of eating. one eating episode or even one week of eating that makes a difference in our our health and our well-being it's it's you know what we do consistently over time and what's what you know what are the practices that are sustainable and so yeah a lot of it you know we tell the clients in our work we want you to you know we want you to get a c in the course we we want you to we want you to go for a c in this program and you you see people's eyes just widen like what and and you know Brene Brown has that quote what we're you know we're, what we're trying to do is create a community of the adequate yes <laughs> we're going for adequacy here C C level work we're, we, we're not interested in a students yeah. we're not interested in it's not a requirement to get an A if you know if you're rooting it in perfectionism you're rooting it in dieting Completely and so agree. yeah yeah it's a big one and I think would you say that that's one of the most uh, challenging ones for people is, you know, that sense of, okay, well, I'm not counting calories anymore. I'm not weighing myself anymore. I am letting myself have some variety or some, um, you know, some flexibility. I feel like I'm, I I feel like I'm, you know, on the right path. Um, But would you say that that really um, loosening, I, I don't, I, rather than letting go, I, I guess I call it loosening the grip, you know, loosening the grip on those, um, on the more tightly held beliefs around food and body and weight, um, which is all caught up in that diet mind. Do you think that's one of the hardest steps for people is, you know, just really diving into that pool? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think there's several things that are so weird about this work versus diet cultures you know there's people are used to a quick fix when you go on a diet you know within a 24-hour period of time if you're doing it or not you can know within three hours if you're on your plan and you're you're doing it right and I say I'm putting that in bunny ears sure um 
you know, so I think there's um, the, the rules and the rigidity and the, you know, people are so used to handing over their power to an external source to tell them what, when, and how much to eat. And then they're used to using this, this rigidity and feeling like failures if they have an eating indiscretion. And we're always like, who's, according to who was it an eating indiscretion? And they're also used to, you know, that quick fix. And this work is a long game. And I think getting used to that, people are, you know, oftentimes can feel like they're flailing in this work because they're, they're, they don't have that rule and those rules and that structure, which is why sometimes the hunger awareness and hunger work becomes the new rule. And I think diet, you know, people can do a few minutes ago when we were talking, I'm like, I, I'm pretty sure people can do intuitive eating and make it a diet. Yes. <laughs> because, you know, and, and is it really intuitive eating? Probably not, but they're doing intuitive eating with the hope that it's, you know, with the thought that if I do this right, I'm going to lose weight. And and that interferes with them actually doing all the steps of becoming an intuitive eater again. So, yeah. Oh my gosh. You raise kind of the central point and that is unless we're able to loosen the grip on a weight focus, it will block our path at various times. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, we, you know, we also recognize that, you know, when people live in the culture that they live in, it's really hard to have thoughts, thoughts go away completely, which is why we kind of use that metaphor of the back burner, which is, you know, that you put it back there, you don't have to keep an eye, but we recognize it's going to be there. We also do sometimes use the metaphor of a pop up screen, like on your computer, like it's going to pop up and you're going to see it and you're going to go hi, and then you're going to just minimize it and put it back down in its corner. I love you know, that. Yeah, that it's not probably, you're not going to be able to click it and throw it in the garbage can, especially mm-hmm. early in this work. I think when we get deeper into this work and we have deeper roots in it, we can do that mm-hmm. uh, more more often than not. But, you know, it's, yeah, that idea that it's, it's going to come, you know, come up. We tell clients, you're going to, within 30 minutes of leaving our office, you're going to get a message somewhere in the culture um, that, you're crazy for pursuing this path and you should yeah. just go back to diet culture. So there it is. Yeah. We go high and then we put it back down in the, oh, I love in the corner. <laughs> I love it. Cause lots of people really like those, um, whether it's a visualization or storytelling or something that feels like they can really, um, that it, that it doesn't have to become quote unquote a problem. You know, those, those thoughts or those urges don't have to become a problem, that it's something to, to notice. And I guess that brings us back to our, our mindfulness skills, doesn't it? Um, being able to notice something without being reactive, but being responsive and respectful to our very real experience. Yeah, there's like a practice of non-attachment and a real, yeah. we're strengthening, you know, a muscle to witness what's happening without um just automatically habitually doing the response that we're doing. And that's, you know, when we think about this, especially in the first few weeks of any program we do, people are, are doing individual, they're like, I'm, I, and I don't even know if I'm doing it right. You know? Mm -hmm. And, and so, um, you know, one, one woman in a group years ago, she said, she said, I'm noticing that I'm using the word notice a lot. <laughs> I said, you know what? I think then you're on the path and you're doing the work. <laughs> That's so great. I love it. I love it. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so speaking of noticing, you have um, both a, a personal yoga practice um, and and also you uh, have in the past been very active in, in teaching. So can you tell us a little bit about um, your your yoga path, I guess, and and particularly the um, how you how you have and continue to use yoga philosophy in your work. Yeah, yeah. So um, when I was in grad school in the late uh, mid nineties, I um, developed chronic pain and tendonitis in my my arms, and um, was seeking relief from a variety of practitioners. And one of my massage therapists who I'd been seeing for quite a while, like weekly, um, she kept saying to me, you know, I really think if you did yoga, a lot of this wouldn't even be here. I really think like every week, I really think if you did yoga, this, some of the stuff would not be here. I think you'd have some of it, but it wouldn't be nearly this bad. And every week she'd say this. So finally I was like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to look into this. And I had taken a, a class in the early nineties when I lived in Miami and, and liked the yoga class. Um, and I didn't stick with it. I was in my young twenties and just didn't, for whatever reason, didn't get super into it. Um, probably also for financial reasons back in those days, yeah, actually, yeah. as I'm talking and thinking about it. Um, but here I was in this um, town and I, um, I had belonged to this gym and they had a yoga class and I thought, well, why don't I go, I'll go check out the class at the gym. It's here. It's, and I, I went on a Tuesday night and it happened to be a Kripalu yoga class, which I laugh in 2017 right, right. to think that <laughs> there's no way that you would ever find a Kripalu yoga teacher in a gym in no. 2017. No, no, no. <laughs> but in, in, in 1998, 97, which is when I was doing this, yoga was not what it is today in terms of popularity in U.S. culture. Um, you know, Madonna was just starting to practice yoga and it was getting popular. Uh, you were hearing more and more about it. So it was, it was rising in popularity, but it certainly wasn't what it was today. So I went to this gym class, <laughs> this Kripalu teacher, she used to live at Kripalu when it was an ashram. Mm-hmm. Um, so she was the teacher and I went and I loved it. And I went back every Tuesday night for two years until I moved. And what I noticed is that, um, it almost, I, it almost, it, uh, it became, um, it just was easy to go. I was so drawn to go. I loved the way I felt afterwards. It, um, it was somewhat non-negotiable. It was like, this is what I'm doing on Tuesday nights. And I just always enjoyed how I felt when I left there. And also, I also, um, I was starting to notice my body, uh, my relationship with my body changed. Like I felt I had more reverence for my body. I had more appreciation for my body. And I was also really often taken by surprise that you know, when I go into class on Tuesday nights after work, I'd be like, okay, after class, I'm going to go eat this. And, um, and then I would go to class and I would get out of class and I would be like, no, that's not what I want. I want this. 
And there, through the attunement process and connecting to my body, I was more in touch with what sounded good and what, what I actually really wanted. And I, so I was kind of fascinated by that. And, and just my practice, I just started to um, feel like I just dropped down on the floor in my living room and started practicing on my own because it was just um, so tremendously healing for me. And, um, and so in 2002, I did my yoga teacher training at Kripalu Center for Yoga and Health, which is where you and I spent quite a bit of time yeah, together a few days. Training there. Yeah, that's where yeah. I did my training back in 2002. Okay. It was very different back then to what it, Kripalu was yes. uh, when you went. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, and so in my work with people around their relationship with food and um, noticing such an adversarial relationship people, with their bodies that people had in dieting culture create such an adversarial relationship with the body where people, you know, the body is something that we do things to and on as, appo as opposed to for and with. And the body is seen as separate and um, we judge it like it's this really um, yoga has this ability to change the relationship with the body, which tends to change, you know, maybe the desire to change comes from a deeper place where we're wanting um, you know, we're just noticing that we're drawn to do different things because of how we're feeling emotionally, physically, yeah, and mentally because of the practice of yoga. So I was really interested in combining all of this in this work. Yeah, it's such a beautiful match. Yes. Yeah, and a lot, you know, the self-compassion, the self-acceptance, the, the, the witness. You know, we talk a lot about witness consciousness and yoga and Kripalu yoga um, and developing the ability to observe non-judgmentally which is such a huge component of mindfulness it's not just uh, being able to observe what's going on but to do it in a non-judgmental way with curiosity mm. to to look with curiosity and I mean even as a clinician I think it's such a huge part of motivational interviewing and that's another intersection mm. I think when I got exposed to motivational interviewing as a yoga teacher and as somebody with the kind of personality I have I was just like oh my gosh yes and um, and there's such a curiosity um, when we come to clients from a motivational interviewing perspective that there's a real curiosity where we're asking more questions and giving less advice and listening to the person and drawing out from them versus telling them what to do and really honoring the wisdom that's already there, yes. already alive, already present. And that is so much what yoga is about. And so, yeah, there's just all these ways, these different intersections that are really interesting to me. Oh, absolutely. And I suppose having had that motivational interviewing background and then moving into yoga, you were much more than um, attuned to where those intersection, intersections lay. I can imagine your, your brain was probably blowing all over the place thinking, oh my goodness, <laughs> this is, okay, it's all kind of coming together. Yes. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> it all fits very well together. Yeah, it's beautiful. When you were talking about non-judgment, I was I was thinking that um, for a lot of people, that's one of the again one of the most tricky parts, isn't it? You know that that um, that noticing or being curious can be 
tough enough for many people, but the non-judgment, um, you know, and, and, and then and noticing non-judgment <laughs> can be, um, or noticing judgment and criticism, I should say, um, I find often people find that the most difficult because the, I suppose that the neural pathways are just so deeply ingrained and um, yeah, so there's um, having a having a, an embodied practice or having a, a way that we can integrate mind and body um, whilst noticing what's going on within us and outside of us mm-hmm. um, and noticing, you know, sensations and the movement of those sensations and the coming and the going and the just being with, um, I'm not sure about you, but I always just get a bit like, Whoa, this is so cool. Like this is so awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it's, there's, there's definitely a lot that we can tap into. Um, and yeah, I think I'm just noticing the presence of the inner critic and how it's almost, it almost seems like human nature and maybe it's more because of the culture we live in, but I think it's in part human nature um, to be, you know, that our default is to think that we can't, if we're kind to ourselves and we accept what we do, we're never going to change, you know, (laughs) but I always tell my clients if, you know, I'm pretty sure if you could have hated yourself into a version of yourself that you loved (laughs) and hated yourself into having a different relationship with food than you do, you probably would have arrived a long time ago. Totally. Absolutely. Yeah. It's like if, 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 if that voice, helped people change Mm. we would live in an amazing world i'm pretty sure of it i know it would be utopian it would be incredible (laughs) yeah and then i think when people really tune into that they see how violent oh yeah you know how violent they are and um the way they you know that they bully themselves and Mm. you know and if there's a developmental phase um to the critic it's 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 partly we develop it to help keep us safe when we're young and we don't know to not cross the street when we shouldn't and things like that. But then it just becomes more internalized and automatic and it starts to really, um, sometimes I like to talk to my clients like, like they have all these thoughts and they're like in their head and there's like a board of directors up there and the, And the inner critic has had the gavel and has been running the show for too long. And yeah. he needs, and they, they need to pass the gavel to the other parts of you yeah. so that they can have a voice. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we can, we can let the critic have a seat at the table, but he can't, he doesn't get to run the show. Oh my gosh. I've just got this visualization of like a, a, literally a board of directors. For some reason, I'm visualizing a hospital board of directors for some reason random reason but I'm noticing this you know um this well for me I I kind of I'm thinking of a male but that's that's my own reflection and you know silence order in the court you will do as I demand and um and everyone else kind of sitting at the table all playing nice and going along for the ride and but giving those giving those uh, other people at the table or the other characters or other parts of us you know some room at the table um you know is i would imagine that you would say that's a that's a a big part of healing yeah yeah and i think that's you know why it's so key um 
for clinicians to really be thinking about how do we talk to people about their health and their behaviors and what they're doing because the more I read about Brene Brown's work and shame and vulnerability and how shame is poorly correlated with self-care and it's highly correlated with addiction and depression and bullying and eating disorders and these kinds of things, um, the more I realize that motivational interviewing has given me a way to talk to people that keep shame out of the room Mm -hmm. because if we are having conversations that make people be feel ashamed and feel unworthy we're just contributing to that to that voice that is such a huge obstacle to change and so and we don't sometimes we're not even it's not even intentional. I mean, some people love the Dr. Phil approach and think that's what people need with just a cultural myth. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also just, um, you know, even the subtle things we say that if we say them in a certain way can really be a shame trigger for people. And absolutely, you know, there's really a language we we're developing um, and a way of being where we're, we're, when we do this work, that's it's more helpful yes. than harmful. Yes. Yeah. I often, um, when I do some student training or, or training with grads, I often say, none of, I, I actually use these words. I say, none of you are assholes. Okay. None of you. <laughs> You're all very nice people. You don't go, you don't come into this profession wanting to hurt or harm people, but what is really important to understand are the things that we can say and do that actually cause harm when that is not our intention, but that the impact on people is not, doesn't necessarily, you know, it's, it it might not be something that you're aware of, you know, our intention is honorable and um, quote unquote good, you know, good intention, but the impact on people, unless you really deeply understand somebody's experience and then possibly how we can then um, put people right back into that shame-based experience, then we are actually actually colluding. And that makes people really uncomfortable. I'm like, <laughs> it can make, it, it can, that's why I always preface it with, I know you're not assholes. You're not. You're lovely people who deeply care, which is why this is really important to understand. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I mean, that's a huge, um, one of the big teachings and social justice framework is, you know, there's intent and there's impact and we need to be thinking about the impact we we're making on people, regardless of what our intention intention is. Mm. Um, Oh, and I had another thought. I don't know. You have a million brilliant thoughts, Dana. (laughs) (laughs) And can I just say, it's really, it was funny. When I met you last year, one thing that struck me is you have this um, remarkable ability to recite poetry um, off the top of your head, like long pieces of poetry. How do you do that? (laughs) How do you do this? I do not know. I do not know really, but yeah, I do. I mean, one of it, one part piece of it is um, we, I recite a lot of poetry in my work with clients, Mm -hmm. um, particularly in groups and workshops and retreats. So there's some pieces that I've read aloud so many times Mm -hmm. that they're, they're there to some degree. I sometimes can't 
recite them for verbatim, but I can do a good chunk of them. So some of it's repet- the repeat repetitive nature. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also a lover of quotes. Like I just, yeah. I'm, I collect quotes. Like when I read like a book, I am underlining and starring and folding <laughs> pages and, and pulling quotes and putting the yeah. quotes in my Facebook page. And, um, and I, I think there's, um, in, in part of learning how to facilitate groups and workshops, when we do readings, as particularly with poetry, it taps people into a different, um, a more emotive place. Mm. It's a bit, there's a bit, it's a little less um, intellectual. Like there's, while they're learning something, there's a, if we can get people to, you know, and always it's with the centering, I close, we have them close their eyes and tap into their breath and, and they may not close their eyes and may look softly at the floor or something, but um, whatever they're comfortable doing, but we center a little bit and then I read something and I, um, and it's through some experiential workshops at Kripalu actually, where they've read things and they repeat certain lines, powerful lines that, have tapped me into some of the most powerful healing moments. And, mm. and so it's, it's by using a lot of these readings um, and doing them repetitively that they will come to me um, mm. in the moment. But yeah, it's a weird, I don't know exactly how there's room. For all this <laughs> and I always have a book with me. Um, yeah. You know, when I do groups and workshops, I have a book of poems and readings and, excerpts from books and um quotes and things that when we're on a certain topic I'll read something and it people just I think it brings somebody else into the room somebody else's wisdom and can be really powerful yeah I think so there's something about you know poetry telling a story that really taps into that that deep part of us um into a different part of our brain and body and is a way to also connect with the uh, the universal experience you know the me too um that, that's so palpable with groups yeah yeah and the common humanity is such yes. a piece mm. a big piece and i think that's where the group work is so powerful and i've been doing group work in research i did group work and that's where i got a lot of experience facilitating and then um have done a lot of retreats and workshops and i think that's you this work particularly is is powerful um, when you're in community knowing that there's other people choosing an, a really radical path in the in a culture just obsessed with the thin ideal yeah. and you know orthorexia and all that stuff it's a it's a radical path and so to have community and to see others and and to i think to see the impacts of weight bias on people and to have a variety of shapes and sizes and colors in the room, like we start to all see it. And I think a huge path of the healing or a huge, something we talk about in groups is how all the participants want it for everyone in that room, but themselves. Like yeah. and they kind of want it for themselves, but they're scared and they want to abide by a different set of rules, but they really believe in this and they want everyone else to do it. Something I think to really notice that it puts that right front and center for people in a group setting. Yes, I agree. And, and this sense of um, not being alone in your experience um, mm-hmm. because, you know, unfortunately that's one of the most hurtful things about shame is that it, it, 
leads people to feel like I'm the only one who this has happened to. I'm the only one, you know, this sense of an isolated experience, um, which then, you know, reduces help seeking and, um, you know, um, prevents people from reaching out and um, seeking other like-minded people or, or, or health support. Um, so yeah, I'm a big, 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 big fan of groups, and mm-hmm. um, and I think also for us too as providers, you know, what what value have you found in having a community of 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 providers? And I really, really want to ask about your body trust course as well. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Well, I think um, yeah, something changed. I think on the individual when we're thinking about clients, I think there's. Um, I think in group work, there's, yeah, there's something about the cohesiveness and the community. And there's also, I think, more ownership in their own process. I feel like one-on-one sometimes mm-hmm. it's like, fix me, fix this, you know, and it's my job as the dietitian to fix this, right? There's some energy there, not always, but it's, there's a subtleness to it. Whereas when you're in group work, I don't think people, I think people have a more collective sense of ownership of all of this mm-hmm. um, you know and then certainly as a as a provider when you're choosing um, uh, to go against the dominant traditional way paradigm you're going to feel really alone and you're going to feel really weird and mm-hmm. um, and I think that's where the community is critical and in our you know we have a body trust provider certification program Um, that's a six month training intensive. Um, and we meet for a week in Portland together and then we have six months of online training and we bring everyone together that first week with the primary goal of creating the community, a brave community, um, and creating, uh, a cohesiveness, um, and a connection so that we can continue to grow as a, as a, a community together. And, um, I mean, there's some people doing our, our program that have a lot of knowledge and have been in this, doing this work for many, many years, but they come and do our training because they want the community. Yes. They want to be with other people. Yeah. Yeah. And man, to think like, as we send more and more people, we just finished our first group. Um, and literally like the, I think the official first date of somebody to be certified was July 19th. Oh, wow. And so we finally have a directory on our website of body trust providers and, and to think about people doing body trust groups around the world and, and also having a community that's done, um, that's committed to this. Um, yes. yeah. and, Um, wants to be together and you know and really needs that group energy to keep going when um, you know to put you know to 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 choose to do this for (laughs) for a little while is one thing but to stay on the path given what we face as a culture um, is uh, it helps to know that there's others like you going forward Absolutely. Yeah, because yeah. There's a, it can be very taxing, can't it? You know, it can be exhausting going into the arena, as Brené would say, again mm-hmm. and again and again. And whether that yeah. arena is your counselling space or whether it is um, your, uh, you know, working with other providers or conversations with doctors or conversations with families or with colleagues or with your own, you know, your own local community that 
um, you know, that, that caring for yourself and part of caring for yourself, you know, connecting with that, um, with other people, other like-minded people in this space to help uh, refill your cup, I guess. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. To know you're not alone, to yeah. know that there's a, a community of people doing this. Yes. I mean, even when I first stopped, uh, well, first I kind of weaned myself off of my full-time job at this research center. It's mm -hmm. just went down to four days a week and then three days a week. Um, and it was within a month or two of leaving or starting my business that I came across a paper. Um, oh, what was the paper? It was a health at every size. I think it was Colorado Rockies health at every size study or something. Oh, okay. And, um, and I read it and I thought health at every size, like what? And I'm like, Oh my gosh, there's a community of people who <laughs> Like, it was like, I am not making this shit up. No, right? you are not. <laughs> oh my God, I'm not making this up. And then, you know, when you, uh, I don't know if you've talked to Lucy Aframore yet in your podcast, but. Um, when She's I, on my hit list. Yeah, yeah. When I came to, um, when I became aware of Lucy's work in critical dietetics and read one of her first published papers. I was like, who is this? Mm. And then, um, and then we met at, at a training that her and Linda Bacon did. And, um, and I learned about her path to Hayes and I was like, Oh my gosh, we're like, like it's, it's almost the exact same path. Like she was working in the traditional weight paradigm. She thought she was helping people. She thought that, you know, and then she started to get disillusioned and wait, what are we doing? And she started to learn, you know, and she was like, we are messing people up, man. <laughs> yes. I am not going to do this anymore. And, and, and her work shifted and it's, it was, it's just so helpful to even know that somebody's path and her path was very similar Yes. Um, to mine. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you mentioned before the words brave community. And I love that. Like when you said it, I was like, oh, yes, I love it. So how would you describe what a brave community is and does? Um, well, I think, you know, one of the, there's a lot of talk about brave space versus safe space. And sometimes you know, if we make space space too safe, it 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 keeps people in their comfort zones, and we know that's not where growth happens. Mm -hmm. You know, it's one of the things I draw up on the board of any group, and often in with my individual clients, is the magic happens outside of your comfort zone, like that image of your comfort zone in one bubble, and then in another bubble, completely disconnected from the other one, is and where the magic happens, right? Yes. And, you know, so brave space is um, different than safe space. You know, certainly we want people to know that things are going to be confidential and some of those, you know, things we do for safety, but we want people to be willing to take risks, to be vulnerable, to open, to share. Um, um, mm -hmm. And that is, that's what comes out of a group that's agreed to create a brave space to look at our stuff, you know, like in our certification program we tell providers this program's going to bring up your stuff and yeah. we we don't believe that you can take 
your clients further than you've gone in this work. Mm -hmm. And so we, we want to create this brave space for you to be willing to look at this and to own your story and to own where you are in the, we don't expect people to be perfect. We realize that you are living in this culture, just like everybody else, but that you, you know, go forth with bravery and courage to look at your stuff and to be able to say, you know, Oh my gosh, I just did the body, body appreciation scale. And, Oh, I, like I'm, I'm surprised and not surprised at my score and to really just let us hear that, you know, yeah. because when, when you hear that other people step and say, I had the same experience and that's what happens when we go towards bravery and take risks and sharing is um, that's where the magic happens. Yeah. Love Did I give a good, is that a good explanation? Oh, that, was, that was beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> felt rambly. No, goodness. Uh, Dana, that is not a word that I would use to describe you rambly. No, not at all. Not at all. Um, yeah, it's interesting. The parallel process is really interesting too, isn't it? You know, the, what our clients, what we're asking from our clients and then also what is required from us too. And then, and then I guess the parallel process extends even further into the, um, in, into our, uh, so, um, health at every size community, um, you know, where, where, we're being invited to, you know, pull up our brave pants and step into spaces that might be uncomfortable. Um, but that that's where, like you say, that's where the magic happens. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I just think, um, I don't, at a certain point for in my own practice and work, I just, I just couldn't, it, it, like yeah. I, it, I was just called. It was like, it was, yeah. it's almost like I didn't have a choice and I know yeah. I did have a choice, but yeah. yeah. Once you know, you can't unknow. Once you see, you can't unsee, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, um, I think it gets easier to live outside my comfort zone. You know, I think there's this place where we stretch. We're not asking people to go way outside of their comfort zone, but you know, like where are your areas to stretch? And, you know, because we tend to stay, I love Tara Moore says your, your inner critic is like a sleeping guard at the edge of your comfort zone. Oh. And when you are about to take a really critical step on your path, your critic is going to get really loud and say, who do you think you are? What do you think you're doing? There's no way, blah, blah, blah. And to know that, for me to know that, um, yeah. like when I jumped um, and left my part-time job to go fully into be nourished private practice, it was tremendously scary to yes. um, let go of a paycheck and, it's, you know, and health insurance, you know, in this country, we don't, we're not guaranteed health insurance and it's very expensive, um, you know, so to, to let go of those safety nets and have that, um, you know, to take this risk, my critic was like, Oh man, you're going to be homeless. And Oh man. And I was, but to know that, that to have that quote in my mind of, of Tara Morris, that your, your critic is, I like a sleeping guard at the edge of your comfort zone. And when it wakes up or when it gets loud, it, it means you're, you're about to take a very important step and it's not a sign to stop. It's not a sign to, to, it's not a stop sign. We have a card in our body trust deck that says fear is not a stop sign. That's one of my favorites. I love that. Thank you. Thank uh, you. Yeah. Are they available on your website? They 
you know, we, we ordered them <laughs> and they, um, they have disappeared. Like, I think we have two left. Um, but we are ordering more. So if Yay. you go to our website and they're not in our store, we will have more. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. No, that, that, that's amazing. Cause I love your cards. I think they're absolutely gorgeous. And then, and there's a lot of you and Hillary in those cards too. You can see, you know, a lot of the work and a lot of the, um, a lot of the passion that you have for, for communities, um, in those cards. Mm. So I think it's a beautiful reminder for both for um, people in our community and providers as well, just to kind of come back to our center and remind ourselves what, why we're doing this because mm. it's yeah, for the, for the collective consciousness. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. It's beautiful. Yeah. They were super fun to make. And I bet. Yeah. And to brainstorm and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you had like 200, you had to shortlist. Oh, we did. Yeah, we had to put several on the back. Uh, yeah, so we've got our, our redeck. Second deck. <laughs> someday will be the second deck. Exactly. Absolutely. Um, so for, for Be Nourished, for you and Hillary, um, what I've I've noticed over the years is that there's been a, a stronger and stronger undercurrent of social justice work that you've both been involved in. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, social justice and body healing and the and um, know how that's how that's come to play a much um, more dominant role in your in your practice yeah I think um you know I think where it started was when we went up to Seattle um to Linda and Lucy's I think it was called passing on the Hayes message or something mm -hmm. and we went up uh to Seattle and spent a week with them and there was one full day that they spent on social justice mm -hmm. stuff and I remember um I remember looking over at Hillary if we were about halfway through the day and then we were probably on day four so we'd been there a whole week lots of stuff and then on day four we get all the social justice um perspective and um i remember looking at hillary and she was welled up in tears and i thought what's going on what's going on and her her father had passed away a couple months prior to that so i thought oh i think she's you know and i said are you okay and she goes i can't take it this is horrible this is just like it was just yeah. to hear the data um um and it, she just was very touched by it. We both were, um, but particularly she was just welled up in tears. And so I really believe that that's kind of when we started to see this, uh, our work through that lens and have learned more about, um, about social justice in general. And, you know, that big piece of it to me is how um, all oppression is connected. Yeah. And we're not all free until we're all free. And, um, and that there's all these intersection, intersecting identities that we're working with. So we want to be mindful of, you know, one thing we, in recent years, like the transgender community and body, how do we have, um, you know, consider the transgender community and body acceptance and body trust when there's some things within um the the gender dysphoria that are you're going to bump up against some stuff when we talk about body image and um body trust when somebody yeah. is um has gender dysphoria and, and is transgender and so you know to me there's a humility and a, we, we we seek to be humble in this and to know that there's a lot 
a lot more to know than there is that we already know. Like we have a lot to learn um, and to, to really recognize our privilege, you know, that living in a, a thin, a thin white cease women um, uh, who are pretty average sized bodies, you know, we pass in the community mm -hmm. that we've been offered a lot of privilege that people, you know, and people of color don't, um, don't have that privilege. People in fat bodies don't have that privilege. So to really start to look at things through a lens of privilege, even in our, you know, dietary recommendations are mm -hmm. so often rooted in classism. And, right. um, and so... Yeah, so it's really wide in the lens, and I think we're still learning a lot. Um, but it's um, certainly given us a um, a much wider lens to look at all this through. Um, and you know, things. I think that's probably what's changed our work the most um, in the last few years, especially. I can't remember what year we did that training with them, but. Um, yeah, yeah, that was just before Linda came out to Australia. So that would have been four years ago, maybe? Yeah. About four years ago? Yeah, yeah. that sounds about right. Mm. Um, yeah, wow. Yeah, and we're can, can still doing that. We, we just, we have these post-its that um, we just reordered um, and we chose some new phrases because you know, we've learned that some of the phrases we had in our first post-its, they're kind of based off of Operation Beautiful, mm. where you they have phrases like, um, you're already beautiful, um, you're, uh, and we, and some of them for people with um, disabilities or um, mm. transgender, when you say there's nothing wrong with your body, that is not inclusive. Gosh. Um, and that is not body positive. And so we just discontinued that card and ordered new phrases for our thing because there were a few that from our learning in these last few years, we're like, we can't put this on a post-it anymore. Yeah. The mm. evolution of understanding bodies is so interesting. Yeah. And, and like you, I feel that um that my understanding over the past couple of years in particular is like oh okay and thank goodness for this beautiful um community of people who have really helped us understand i'm not sure about you but i haven't ever felt really criticized kind of felt like okay so when you say that this is this is what you're missing or this is the this is the nuance of this that you're not quite getting or you know how might this appear in somebody who um, doesn't relate to the gender you know with which they were assigned at birth you know how, how would this how could this be you know perhaps unhelpful for them so it's um I found a lot of kindness and generosity in 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 the health at every size and and wider community to help us understand privilege oppression um and language mm -hmm. yeah it's um it's a, I think the language is, is a key. And I think, I mean, to be in brave, to be engaged in bravery means being willing um, to take the risks and make mistakes and yes. fumble over your words and stumble over your words and, and, and to circle back around. I mean, I think that's a big part of the bravery, bravery is that when we make mistakes and we blow it and we're going to blow it, 
Yeah. Um, we don't hide and armor up um, with perfectionism. We know we're going to blow it, that we, um, that we, we hear the feedback, we circle back around, we, we do what we can to, to shift and change. Yeah. Do you know what, Dana? It would be so wonderful if uh, there was, uh, and I don't actually know whether this exists in the US. It may. I'm running with assumptions here. We, we need a, like a social justice unit don't we in dietetics <laughs> where, you know, <laughs> yeah, the more and more, you know, we talk about our work, the more we describe it as really helping people, including clinicians. Yes. Um, develop the resiliency needed to live in a world filled with weight bias, to compassionately live in a world filled with weight bias. I feel like that more and more is what we're doing. And that to me has such a strong social justice um, you know, it just really shows how, you know, when, if I, you would ask me to describe our work, even, you know, five, six years ago, that is not this, that statement did not exist for me. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think there's a willingness to put stuff out there and to know that it's going to morph and change over time. And that's a good thing. That's how we grow. That's how we learn. That's yes. how we're honing, we're honing. Right. And then there's, you know, with, especially around, bodies and size I think sizeism is often left out of the discourse and social justice where we a lot of the things we've uh, trainings we've gone to on social justice haven't even talked about weightism and sizeism mm. and even healthism you know so I it, it's interesting to be in this particularly engaged in this part of social justice work because there's a lot of people who believe in social justice that, that don't realize the amount of weight bias they've internalized Damn. and how, you know, how much of it is rooted in bullshit. <laughs> so they really look at the research, right? Like they yes. think they're, oh, yeah. I, just, yeah. I'm, I care about people and just I'm trying to be healthy. And yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, no, no P.S., you care about certain people. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And yeah. so it's that's interesting too to be, um, you know, taking that charge in particularly in the realm of health is, I just don't think, um, well, in size, I just don't think that it's, it seems like a lot of the people in our trainings and workshops, when they go and other social thing, justice things, they're, they're like raising their hands. So what I'm curious, what about weight, <laughs> you know, and they're, uh, they're constantly putting on the radar of people who, who were, have worked in social justice the social justice field for years, but sizeism isn't really on the radar. Yeah. Do you think that, I mean, given the, especially the current climate in the US, do you think that it's been um, more race, race has kind of, kind of come front and center, which has pushed some other things further back? Um, possibly. Um yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, I've been reading some Audre Lorde stuff. And this year, one of the thing commitments I made um, to deepen my understanding of social justice work is to commit to reading only books of people of color. Right, yeah. And um, written by marge people with marginalized identities. And, um, and when I read these things, I one thing that blows me away is how long people have been talking about this stuff. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. 
and I am just a white woman waking up, you know, and I read Audre Lorde's stuff and I look at the dates of her essays. And I'm like, 1970. Oh my God. Face palm. <laughs> I, I wasn't just, even born. Yeah, and I just, I have this paper open on my, my desktop. What is it? It's, um, was written in 1990 and it's um, disordered eating in women of color. Oh, like, yeah. and like, when are we going to start to see eating disorders as um, things Human that impact things. more than thin white women Absolutely. from, Absolutely. from, you know, affluent communities. Mm -hmm. We, mm -hmm. and this was written in 1990 mm -hmm. face plant. Like, um, so, you know, I feel like, um, you know, there's just so much work to do and there's people that have been doing this work for so long. And I think as long as we, you know, keep an intersectional lens and, and the, continue to have this idea that all oppression is connected yeah. and that, you know, when you're, when there's that quote, like if you've come to free me, you know, forget it. But if you've come because your liberation is bound up within mine, then let us work together. I didn't say that verbatim, but that is like my liberation is bound up in the black lives matter movement, sure, yeah. the trans movement. We cannot all be free until we're all free. And so, um, you know, whether people are talking about race or they're talking about other, like, to me, they're all connected and it's all, um, it's all moving towards healing and yeah. living in a better, better world. Yeah. And you and Hillary are just, and, and others, um, you know, because I, I'm sure it probably uh, makes you uncomfortable just to hear about you and Hillary, you and Hillary, you and Hillary. There are a lot of other people I know that support you, um, including your loved ones and um, and the communities in which you move. But um, I guess fr from me, just wanted to extend just such enormous gratitude to you and to Be Nourished and to everything that you are you everything you're doing and saying and being because without you being in that brave space you know it doesn't invite other people to be in brave space and then you're in brave space by yourselves mm. <laughs> so um so i just wanted to extend enormous enormous thanks for your leadership um oh, thank you and you're welcome thank you and you're welcome <laughs> mm, yeah. something i'm working in therapy is like receiving like okay you can receive that you're welcome yeah. Fiona. thank you for <laughs> you're welcome instead of like oh, no, no don't let's not go there <laughs> right right which is why I, which is why I, I ran with the oh i don't know whether don't know whether it'll be um whether you would like to have received that as thank you you and hillary as if you're the only two people doing this work um because i, I know that you would then be extending extending that beyond yourselves to the people that have have been teachers for you through your lives. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And we wouldn't be here with the, without the people we've learned so much from and right. you know, all the people who've come before us and you know, with our, some of our trainees, they look at this fat underground stuff that's been out since the seventies and yeah. they're just like, what? So what? I know. Yeah, they've laid the found work or groundwork and, um, you know, I think, you know, we've been working on language and for whatever reason, we're in this, in this space, in this position. But yeah, we know that there's been a lot of people for a really long time um, working to make it possible that we can even do this work in the world. Right. So. 
and have people signing up for our programs and stuff. But, yeah. yeah. So, so just to, just to um, circle back around to your program. So how can people find you and, and your programs? Because body trust, I mean, seriously, if I didn't live literally on the other side of the world, I would absolutely be in your cohort. And um, I've just heard such amazing things about the body trust program um, or the um, it's not called a program what's it called body trust the certification certification training yeah, yeah so yeah. Um, you can find us at be nourished.org that's the active phrase be nourished.org um, we also are on Facebook and have an Instagram and Twitter accounts so you can find us on social media um, we do offerings for both the general public and providers, um, particularly our, our registered trademark is Body Trust. We, we trademarked it a couple of years ago. Very smart, um, smart, to, smart. Thank you. Yeah. To, yeah, to just kind of put everything under that umbrella. So we offer workshops, retreats, online programs for people wanting to move towards Body Trust in their personal life. And then we are um, training healthcare providers and how to do this kind of work because that that's the one thing that tends to be seems to be lacking in this community is yeah. yep. the training. You know, we've learned from other people, and there, yeah, there's not a formal training in this. No, um, mm. that's a, a to, in in our opinions particularly it's long enough and extensive enough for people to really get the nuances of this work. So, yeah. um, and the support and, and in the, you know, there's, their transformation doesn't happen in the head. It's, you know, if there's a process of learning that we can know all this stuff, um, but there's something different when we, we come together and talk about it. Yeah. Um, so we do, we have a 30 day e-course called promoting body trust and clinical practice. That's an evergreen course, which means it starts the day, that you purchase it and it drips into your email box. Um, and it's a great way to learn more about this approach and a little bit more about Be Nourished. And if you're at all interested in the certification program, which is a six month program, um, the, the e-course is a great way to get to know us and see if you feel drawn to work with us. And it's also pre, a prerequisite of the program because we want people to really know what they're getting into before signing up for a six-month program. Yeah. Um, and that is an interdisciplinary training program. I mean, we, we have dietitians and coaches and therapists and physicians, and we have people from a variety of places around the world participating. Um, and when you're done at, at the end of the six months, you get to um, call yourself a certified body trust provider and be in our directory mm. and be in our community. And, I, and again, I think there's a lot of people in our community that are, um, have, a, have a fair amount of knowledge with this work um, and want to know more and go deeper and want yeah. the community. So those are, those are the resources we have for, oh, for people. We also fantastic. do some retreats for uh, clinicians as well. The one you came to embodied practitioner at, at Kripalu. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Mm. So that's at, in November, isn't it? At Kripalu? Yeah, I think it's November 5th through the 8th at Kripalu <gasps> Center for Yoga and Health in Lenox, Massachusetts. Yeah, yeah so right after the BETA that. conference. Yeah, so <laughs> I will see you there. Now, you're, uh, both you and Hillary are presenting separately, I think, at BETA. Is that right? Or together? We're presenting separately at Ren, the Renfrew Conference. Oh, right. Yes, that's right. But at BETA, we're, we're presenting on healthism. Um, 
in at the conference and then we have a pre-conference workshop as well on strategies to love your work more than ever so lots of opportunities to work with us whether you're um, looking to do this work personally or professionally our website has all of it on there yeah absolutely my you're going to be busy ladies aren't you in um november yeah the fall is, <laughs> the fall is always busy and yeah we yeah. so yeah we're there for like 10 days on the east wow. coast wow yeah um vita nice. nice. and then kripalu and then renfrew oh so. wow <laughs> oh my gosh now you're tempting me to call my travel agent and say uh excuse me change my flights that's it i'm staying yeah, <laughs> we'd love to have you. <laughs> oh, oh, it was so amazing. Yeah, so I can thoroughly, thoroughly recommend any training that you do with Dana and Hillary and and be, and be nourished. Um, hundred percent behind um, behind the work that you do. It's really incredible and it's really life changing, to be honest. Um, so yeah, hundred percent would support anybody looking into this kind of work more for mm. sure. Thank you, Fiona. It's been great to talk with you today. And you too. What an absolute pleasure. And I look forward to seeing you again in November. Yes. Great. Sounds good. Thanks so much, Dana. Bye. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Well, that's our episode of the Mindful Dietitian interview series for today. Thank you so much to our wonderful guest and to you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. Just a reminder that you can find me over on the website www.themindfuldietitian.com.au and please join actually quite a large group of wonderful and enthusiastic dietitians on the closed Facebook group, The Mindful Dietitian. The music you hear is called Happiness from Ben Sound, used under the Creative Commons license. Have a great day, everyone.